This program is brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu. Hi, I'm Professor Jones. I am on the faculty at Suffolk University Law School. I joined the faculty back in the fall of 2008, and since then I've worked on various research projects, which I'm happy to talk to you about today. The book I just edited is called um, Confronting the Opt-Out Revolution, which is a book to be published by the New York University Press. It has just been submitted to the press has been approved finally, and now it's in the publication process. So this is a book that um, I first had an interest in back in the fall of 2003 when the New York Times published an article by Lisa Belkin called The Opt-Out Revolution, in which she argued that women in the workplace today were beginning to eschew participation in the workplace and career advancement because they chose to stay home and have families. And she saw this as a result of rejecting feminism. And this intrigued me not only because of teaching possibilities. For example, I taught the article in the class I covered called Law of the Family, the way in which families are affected by laws, for example, workplace discrimination laws and so forth, even policies, family medical leave policies. And so with the book, I wanted to explore the implications for feminist legal theory and women in the workplace. So I used to teach feminist legal theory as a class in women's legal history. I now incorporate that into my current class in American legal thought. We have a whole unit on feminist legal thought. And so this book is centered upon considering the ways in which women and equality in the workplace have different implications based upon different sort of questions one might ask or different policy implications one might consider. And so in drawing upon the works of the various contributors, my interest was in exploring how their arguments with and about the opt-out revolution of women leaving the workplace really reflect policy decisions either in the workplace or through various laws that affect women in the workplace and the way in which women's responses could be seen from various perspectives of feminist legal theory or even as well through perspectives of how law and policy again, drawing upon feminist legal theory, influence women's possibilities. My goal with this book is to really develop a multifaceted approach thinking about feminist legal theory, because what I found even back then, and even teaching now, is that many students have a very narrow perspective of what feminist legal theory is, and it's about introducing the reader to the multifaceted aspects of feminist legal theory and talk about the implications for law and policy through those multifaceted approaches. Well, feminist legal theory presumes that men and women are equal in society, that they should be equal in society, and that laws, for example, which affect inequality should be modified, changed to make them more equal. So, for example, the most familiar feminist legal theory concept that many people are familiar with is what's called the equal treatment approach. And this goes back to the women's right to suffrage going back to the 19th century to the 20th century. That if you just end all of the laws that barred women from equality, giving them the right to vote, giving them the right to equal education, and so forth, all equality would change. But then there are other perspectives as well. You have cultural difference feminism, you have dominance feminism. So cultural difference feminism says, well, yes, men and women are equal, but women are also different from men. And how should the law, if at all, treat those differences. Then dominance feminism, that's a more radical perspective, which argues, and this is coming out of Kathleen McKinnon's work, that to talk about inequality is wrong-headed because you have to talk about the role of law and social institutions and cultural institutions and practices that create domination, that women in society are unequal to men because of patriarchal structures that result in their domination 
by those structures. And so it's, again, thinking about men and women society, gender perspectives, basic concepts of equality, and how you think about equality. Do you mean absolute equality, women to be just like men? Then how do you account for differences? Then how do you account then for the actual differences that result, perhaps, in domination, like, for example, a lot of dominance feminists talk about, you know, rape, sexual harassment, those forms of discrimination that target women basically because of their gender for domination and certain forms of discrimination based discreetly upon their gender as women. In the earlier book I wrote on the property rights issue in the Antebellum South, I was drawing upon certain critical perspectives, drawing upon another branch of feminist legal thought called critical race feminism, and I was interested in certain strands of dominance theory. So in an article I wrote which came out after the book called Free Women of Color in the Antebellum North, Race, Class, and a New Women's Legal History, I talked in a more expansive format the interesting questions I thought that were raised by the project with respect to how gender and race intersected in this particular type of dominance, where, for example, women of color were not equal to mainstream women of the greater group, and they were targeted for domination because of their race and class. And so because of that, the issues of inheritance rights were barred to them under the traditional form of marriage and inheritance through a spouse. And so what happens if you have women who are in relationships with men where they can't marry because they are separated as a caste for use, domination, not to be married, not to be protected the way mainstream women are to be protected. I have since then worked as well on two articles, one which has just been published and another which I'm currently working on as a work in progress. So the article just just come out, it's called Garnethy Garish and the Renter's Life Estate, Teaching a New Concept of Home. And in that article, I tackle the question that I thought was unique to teaching first-year property, where Garnethy Garish is an article that explores this one case covered in a number of property law first-year textbooks. And we wonder how the article could be used to raise certain questions about how property is taught in the first year, theories of landlord-tenant relationships, types of leasehold arrangements, and the reason how the court could have come to this decision in this case of finding this unique type of leasehold interest, which has never been found before. And I explain, my argument is at least, that the court in finding a leasehold for life, drawing upon the very unique circumstances of the case, where, for example, the landlord gave the tenant a lease and gave the tenant only the right to get out of the lease and to end it, turning that into a life estate in the tenant was wrong-headed, not necessarily based upon the facts of the case at hand, drawn solely upon the four corners of the document, which might not have, in my argument, truly reflected the circumstances of the case, because I went to the trial court records and found materials where the various parties provided testimony on what was underpinning all of this. And I argued that because New York state law recognizes rent control, which in effect permits tenants to have leaseholds for life, I argued that that coincided with the court's decision. And so looking at this unique type of case, I believe property law faculty can think about well, what should be the boundaries of leasehold arrangements? Or how could we teach our students advocacy skills? Because when I argue advocacy skills matter, in this instance, I question the advocacy of the lawyer for the late landlord. Because the landlord died, and this lawyer 
was required to take care of his estate, you know, property inheritance rights. And he was confronted with this unusual lease. And the types of arguments he made did not necessarily coincide with the best type of representation for the estate. I am tackling now this interesting question, I think, of from a current events type perspective on um, Episcopal Church property disputes, where it's a matter of understanding how certain types of questions that would normally be considered theological in basis outside of the role of law have become property law issues, have become property law disputes once certain groups within churches, primarily Protestant churches, this one we're talking about, Protestant churches, where disputes over liberalism, conservatism, liberal theology, conservative theology, result in some adherence to the tradition deciding they want to leave. And when they want to leave, they aim to take church property with them. And thus these theological questions have become property disputes type cases. So I'm exploring then the Episcopal Church theological disputes as well as the civil court's response to these along with various property law concepts developed by the tradition of the church, the Episcopal Church, dating back 30 plus years ago when these disputes first became more and more prevalent. And I discussed then the significance of a trust doctrine where the Episcopal Church decided that there would be a trust held between the national church and the local churches, which could protect the national church from losing property when these dissenters want to leave. And at the same time, thinking about the limitations imposed upon the civil courts and not being able to adjudicate internal theological disputes. So it presents the civil courts with this uncomfortable bind where there are these property disputes with theological implications and how then do they maneuver around those. Those sort of disputes have been common or at least have been discussed across denominations. The Methodist Church, Presbyterian Church, Catholic Church disputes, and I'd like to maybe address this point because some might be curious about it, it's totally different because the Episcopal Church, compared, for example, to the Roman Catholic Church, the liturgy is very similar. It seems Roman Catholic to one who might go visit the Episcopalian Church. But various aspects of either theology as well as practice are very much Protestant, where, for example, a Catholic Church tradition it's a matter of the church decides, for example, when churches might close. There have been some disputes lately in Massachusetts, in this area, in Boston and out west, over the closing of certain churches. The closing of churches, and the Episcopal Church as an example, even the other parts of denominations, it's a matter of local control. That the Episcopal churches are controlled in terms of their church property by the local congregations. They manage the property. They hire and fire priests. They, for example, will buy property, decide how it's used, get mortgages, do whatever they need to do to manage the property. But the presumption on the trust auction, this is called the Dennis um, Canon, is that they manage the property for the benefit of the greater church. So when I say it's not unique to the Episcopal Church, it's common across different denominations within Protestantism, but it's, if anything, it's unique perhaps to Protestant churches. This preceding program was brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu.